Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And I'm very excited about our guest this week because there are a few voices in podcasting that I continue to tune into and one that you, dear listener, may also know. It's Jeff Graham, the producer and co-host of the Screenwriter Life podcast, which he oversees along with writer Meg LaFauve of Inside Out and showrunner Lorian McKenna. And I've been following his voice and his journey in making his first feature, Always Lola, for a while now. And I feel similar to Jeff in that we've been sharing our journeys of making indie films together. So a couple months ago, I sat down with Jeff and we talked a lot about how he brought together his first feature. He gave me practical advice for how to pull everything together in so many ways. And it's been so fun to watch his journey. He also unpacks a lot of amazing things about how he built his team, how he crafted his script, and how he carried production through to the finish line, along with a few hot takes on things like shooting near a campus and shooting over the course of a limited amount of time, which is what we often have to do as indie filmmakers. So without further ado, check out my interview with Always Lola, director and fellow podcast host, Jeff Graham. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Jeff, to the No Film School podcast. From our podcast to yours. Yes. I uh, was telling you, Gigi, I feel like I already have a parasocial relationship with you because we're mutually fans of each other's podcasts. So this will be yes. fun. The Screenwriter Life, I, I think I discovered it in when you guys were a couple episodes in. So I've been a long-time oh, wow. listener. You're an OG. Time. I love learning about story and I love audio storytelling. Yeah. Obviously, I want to be a... I, I am pursuing filmmaking, but I do think that there's so much value in just listening and being a fly on the wall in these conversations. And I was thinking of the filmmaking podcast and the screenwriting podcast and the storytelling podcast and these industry podcasts. I was like, 
trying to put them into boxes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I feel like no film school is drinks at a bar with your friends and chatting. Yeah. And I feel like the screenwriter life is like a mixture of the emotional support on the journey every day. So I get that like support from my friends and mentors. It feels like there's a mentorship relationship, but also like I am taken to school on story and structure. I can totally relate. It's funny. If I were to put it in a box, I, it's almost, it's like school, but like you're with your guidance counselor who has like a ton of experience. Like I feel like Meg and Lori and like are just as much my professional mentors as they are my therapists. And if any of your listeners don't listen to the show, I produce and I'm an on-air producer for, yes, the Screenwriting Life podcast, as you mentioned, with Meg LaFove and Lorian McKenna, who met at Pixar. And so they just have tons of experience. But what I really appreciate about the show is as much as it is like a kind of heady intellectual craft podcast, it's a pretty open and kind of like warm, supportive environment, no matter what stage of your journey you're on. But I do yeah. think I typically get my mind blown like three times an episode by those two yeah. geniuses. So <laughs> I get it. How did we get to be so lucky that our through our jobs I know that pays our bills, we get to learn? I know. Yeah. Well, I will credit you. I, I listen to the No Film School podcast too. And I hope it doesn't sound insulting for me to say that I sometimes sound like it feel like it's also school, even though it's technically the No Film School podcast, right? But <laughs> no, we're pro. We're pro. pro film. School. Okay, great. We're whatever you need. Whatever you need. That's, whatever you need. Well, that's what it is. And we say that a lot of the time on TSL too, is it's like the whole point of producing a useful filmmaking podcast is that you need to bring on a lot of different perspectives and voices, even if they aren't necessarily your method or craft, because you're providing a toolbox, a, a toolkit rather, I guess, for your listeners, and they can pick and choose what tools they want. But it's yeah. like, there's no harm in trying on a method if it gets you to where mm-hmm. you need to be creatively. So I think that's, I think we're really aligned in that. Like that's totally, to me, that's the beauty of podcasting. And it does feel like when you are an emerging filmmaker or even somebody who has significant experience, the process of filmmaking, no matter what role you're in, you have to be a self-starter and you find your folks that you love working with. But the benefit of having a, a great podcast network and actually Jason Hellerman just put out another list article about like, 30 filmmaking podcasts that you should be listening to. And then there's 10 screenwriting podcasts that you should be listening to. But like, this is a way to build community. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happening with the No Film School podcast uh, in my year and some change that I've been working on it. The Screenwriter Life podcast has this really like engaged Facebook community and the Patreon. Mm -hmm. And so you are not alone. Actually, I think that's what you guys say on the podcast. Yeah, you're You're a true student of the show. Yeah. At the end of the show, Lorian always says, um, keep writing and remember you are not alone. And I feel like if there was like a perfect kind of microcosmic summation of our show, it would be that. Keep writing and you are not alone. So obviously both, you're a writer too. I think in some ways, writing is the hardest part of like the the filmmaking cocktail. And it can be the loneliest part, I think, is especially part of it. And I will say, I think TSL, I'm lucky it's provided me sort of a family or like a pool to swim in with a lot of other writers. So even when I am just like banging my head on the page, I feel like I at least know other people are doing it with me. (laughs) Well, it's the perfect time for me to hear that personally, because I, as I emailed you, I am endeavoring on my first micro-budget feature. Yes. Oh, that's so great. And I wrote a... (laughs) It was. It's one of those things, and I'm only going to talk about it on the podcast. I'm not going to be posting about it. I really want to protect the bubble of creativity yeah. around it. 
specifically, and this is a piece of advice that I got from one of the actors, Scott Monahan. It the project right now is a table of bubbles. Mm-hmm. I kept telling him, I'm like, nothing is real. We just have this opportunity to shoot within this window, potentially in Panama. Cool. On an island in Panama, which is a whole other thing. But I was like, but nothing is real yet. Nothing is real. And Scott, who has also shot a micro-budget film called Anchorage that did really well at festivals and just was sold and is doing a small theatrical run. And we'll have Scott on to talk about that in a couple months from now. But Scott was saying, you keep saying nothing is real, but actually I think that this is a table of bubbles. Mm. Like you're slowly building it. You're adding a bubble here. You're adding a bubble there, but you can't put anything on it and you can't pick it up, but there's something there and we can Mm. all see it. We know that it's there. So I'm in this very early stage we just did a screen. We just did a table read of literally the first draft cool. because of insanity of making it. And and I came away last night saying that is absolutely a first draft <laughs> of a script. Yeah. And so I'm not alone. Need to hear that right now. Keep writing. And today on the podcast, we you are going to take me to school because you have completed. You have gotten distribution for. You have screened. And you are about to release, by the, at the time we were recording this, your first feature. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, and I want to, if you need some solidarity, like I have a very distinct memory of the, this is a first draft table read moment. So again, like you're definitely not alone. I'm a big advocate actually of like table reads throughout development. And some writers aren't, but I think at least for my feature, Always Lola, and I can talk more specifically about it as we go. I was doing table reads with a couple of folks who I know were going to be in the, sh- the movie. I don't know if you're doing it that way as well. I think that's a really great way to create a collective sense of ownership over the project because mm-hmm. your whole cast is kind of along for the ride with you. So they'll feel creatively invested in it as you keep building yeah. it. And again, as some of those bubbles, I guess, what would the metaphor be? Solidify and become yeah. something tangible. Your whole cast will have been with you there uh, with you during it. So yeah. Well, I love that. Now, tell me about the when your film went from being a table of bubbles to like, guys, this is happening. It's that's such an interesting question because, like, does that ever happen? You know, there's something so delicate about the filmmaking process where, like, yeah, it does feel like at any time they could all pop. Like, even as like right now, we're in the middle of two strikes, and like I have a conversation with my distributor this week, and we might be pushing the date. So. And you can keep this on the air, but like we may, I may be actually coming back to you to adjust our release date. And I will say, just in terms of my solidarity with the strike, I've been really thoughtful about how and when I want to promote this movie. And mm-hmm. I've come to the decision to myself that, like, because our distributor is not a struck company, and because as the writer director of the film, I have different guidance from my union than you know the actors would. That I feel consciously okay to go on this show, but like some folks wouldn't. But I think I will say there is some, to go back to your original question, there is something about, you just kind of have to decide to keep going. Like, I think it's like, it's a s- series of decisions about not letting the bubbles pop because mm-hmm. filmmaking is so hard that at a certain point, you just kind of have to like will your way through it um, because otherwise, I don't know. I mean, like we just made a decision and we're like, we're shooting on this day. Let's book locations now and book flights so that we know production's going to happen. And then... You know, you just kind of push, you just kind of keep pushing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what was the genesis of the the story? And when did you know you wanted to tell this story in particular? Yeah, so my feature is called Always Lola. And um, it's a coming-of-age dramedy, kind of in the style of like John Hughes or Lawrence Kasdan. I love 80s hangout movies like The Big Chill and The Breakfast Club. And I feel like they're kind of further and fewer between. Um, so I was like, I kind of want to do like a Gen Z Big Chill. Um, and at the same time, as I was kind of feeling inspired by that era of filmmaking, I got the news that one of my closest high school best friend had passed away in her 20s mm-hmm. under some really challenging circumstances. And so I feel sorry. like as I was wrestling with sort of the emotional journey of losing someone that you were very, very close to and trying to get a film up on its feet. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things I really think of myself as a writer first. And I was like, I know I'm going to need to get to the page to sort of sort through this anyway. I wonder if there's a vehicle for this grief that would actually make sense to possibly stage as a micro-budget feature. So the movie ended up being this kind of of coming-of-age dramedy following five best friends who reunite on their annual camping trip to mourn the loss of their once best friend, Lola, who they lost the year before. But on this trip, secrets around her death slowly leak out, particularly Mm -hmm. from her sister, who's sort of doing everything to hide the truth of what really happened to her friend. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on emotionally, personally for me, and just this desire to push through my first feature where all the stars kind of aligned. Yeah. Grief is such an interesting topic to explore because it's something that touches us all and hits us all. And we don't really talk about it as much as a culture, especially Mm -hmm. when I don't want to spoil anything with the film, but especially when it comes in unexpected ways. Right. And in, I work at a kid's grief camp in San Diego called Experience Camps. And we do a lot of work around creating space for kids who have lost a sibling or a parent or a primary caregiver to experience and learn the tools to cope with that. And I think that what's interesting specifically about Always Lola is that you've created a space and you've shown how multiple people are coping with it in different ways Mm -hmm. and also explore the idea that it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. And, And we don't always get the sort of bow tying up ending when it comes to these things. And that's a great forum, not only for exploring this particular topic, but also for character. Exactly. That is such a sharp read of the movie. I think like, yeah, someone else had to articulate it to me, but I screened it for a writer friend and she was like, basically I mentioned there are five main characters and she was like, I can't believe that you decided to kind of make each of the characters represent one of the five stages of grief. And I was like, Yes, I absolutely well, did do that on purpose as I was writing, which of course, writing is so subconscious. But yeah, yeah, no, you articulated that perfectly where when I lost my friend, like, it's not like grief is one emotion. It's like a roller coaster that you're on and some days you're okay. And some days you're like, you feel like it was absolutely your fault. How was I complicit in this? Some days you're really pissed right. off. Some days you don't want to get out of bed. And like, I some days it's funny. Like some days there's actually humor to be found in the experience. And I think I just kind of gave myself the challenge of like, how can I sort of walk through the entire roller coaster of my grief journey and sort of imbue those peaks and valleys in my characters? And it actually created a great sort of paradigm for me to create a group of friends because I wanted each of them to be struggling with her loss in completely unique ways. Mm -hmm. One of the things you guys speak about a lot on the Screenwriter Life podcast is going into the lava Mm -hmm. as a writer. And I think that also applies to directing. Mm -hmm. The idea behind that is exploring your fears and the things that seem scariest to you. And feel free to add on if that if I'm missing something. But I'd love to hear about like what what you would do 
to let yourself get to the place where you're going to the scary place. Yeah, that's exactly right. I like deeply believe that um, we go to see movies because we want to be emotionally moved. Um, you know, I love a good thriller. I love a good genre movie. But I think the best examples of any genre have to do with the emotional connection that you have to whatever the filmmaker's talking about. And I really think you mentioned fear. I think that was something I was exploring, but I really think shame was the thing I was most interested in exploring. Hmm. I think like, like there's a character in the movie who, you know, was this person's best friend and had a bit of a, not necessarily falling out, but just like drifted away as some do sort of in that last year of her death. And then when he dies, he really has to confront, like, was I close to this person? If I had been closer to this person, what could I have done? And how is it that this person that was my best friend and sort of my lifeline when I was young, you know, I lost touch with her and now she's gone. Mm -hmm. So like that, there was a lot of shame and I guess candidly like self-hatred that I had to kind of walk Mm -hmm. through in therapy around that when that happened with my friend. But I think it, it was allowed to show up in my writing in a way that hopefully was not only healing for me, but a lot of people have mentioned that they feel seen by a lot of the mm-hmm. specifics. I think another thing is part of going into lava is being incredibly specific about our shame and our fear and our emotions mm-hmm. because it's that weird thing and gets said a lot. But, you know, a general expiration of trauma in some ways can kind of feel distant and unrelatable. But when you get really specific with like that shit you think about at 2 a.m. in the morning, like that's when a ton of other people will feel seen by what you're making. Yeah. So I think that was yeah. kind of my approach. Well, it definitely shows. And like that, I think trusting yourself as a writer, and this is more of a two, speaking to writers and creators, like to be able to go there and know that the audience will be able to meet you where you bring them, I think is very scary, mm-hmm. vulnerable, and why people connect, like you said. Now, I want to talk about... This is something that you wrote in your email and you put it at the very bottom, but I'm asking it right Let's up top go. because okay. I think it is so important. So you said you have a lot of specific thoughts about important decisions on the page yeah. when it comes to micro-budget feature filmmaking and why most indie directors set themselves up for failure on day one when they could have definitely done it differently in mm-hmm. development. So talk to me about that. Let's yeah. get into the... This is the T part. Yes. This is the... This is when we get into specifics, the nitty gritty. Well, I, for anyone who's, and I'll be candid with our budget because I think it's probably helpful for our audience. So I think like all in, including distribution costs and like some of those kind of lab things like quality control and like color. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're going to end up somewhere between 40 and $50,000, which obviously that's like a lot of money, but it's not that much for a feature. And I think it's typically what micro budget features are kind of aiming for. I, in that pre-production and like just production without post costs was probably somewhere between like 20 and 30. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of, I think, specific hacks that you can focus on while you're writing to kind of keep you in that price range. And one of them is obviously just like as much of a limited location story as you can create, the better. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we ended up renting kind of like this Airbnb in the middle of rural Ohio, close to my university. And that creates like that created basically a production office for us. Mm -hmm. It had a ton of land and acreage that we could kind of repurpose into a campground. It had trails like there's this kind of big scavenger hunt subplot in the movie that uses the trails that we had on our Airbnb. And I think I mentioned we were close to my university. Um, Did you go to University Ohio State? I didn't go to Ohio State. No, I had a lot of friends who did. I went to another state school in Ohio called Miami University. Which yes, is, yes. you know, it's very confusing for a lot of people because they're like, is that like a Florida school? But right, it's, right. it's a great Ohio public school. 
Um, but the thing I went to Michigan. Oh, so nice. I, you have M's a great school. I've been to Ann Arbor. I dabble. Yeah, it's beautiful. I've been to Ohio. Nice. A couple times. Yes, yeah. I love Ann Arbor. It's a beautiful place. But what I would say is like if you can figure out a way to plug your story into the nucleus of a college campus, it actually creates a great opportunity to produce because there are especially like if you shoot in the summer, like dorms are unoccupied. There's tons of unused housing. There are like a million locations. Like there will be a police station and a library and plenty of bars. And I think in that way, I went in knowing where we were shooting and when we were shooting. So I could Mm -hmm. even base our sort of extracurricular locations on what I already knew was going to be like the nucleus of our production. So I think a lot of people would advise you to like, don't let locations or limits like affect your writing. But I think if you Mm -hmm. know you're going to be shooting... Instead, approach the assignment as if this is all I have, this is all the money I have, and these are the locations I have. And think of it instead like a puzzle to jerry-rig your story into what you know you already have as like an opportunity rather than a hurdle. Kind of like, you know, solving a puzzle, which is so much of what writing already is. Yeah. How many days were you shooting? It was an 11-day shoot, which is crazy. 11 days? Yeah, it's really fast. And we had a lot of exterior nights, which we pulled off. But obviously, like the first piece of advice they give you is avoid exterior nights. But we were a camping movie. So I was like, they've got to like be sitting around the fire and like looking at stars. But yeah, I think I will say 11 days felt fast. But it's also kind of a great magic number for a micro-budget feature if you really limit your locations. Because it's, you know, two six-day weeks plus a day off, which is sort of the magic number to not ask too much of people who are already going to be doing you favors and working for a rate less than they normally would. Yeah. How many location moves were you doing? You know, we had like one day with two company moves, which is insane. But we did kind of block shoot the movie. So, you know, in TV, they will like, if they're shooting like, you know, a 10 episode procedural, they'll shoot like all of the courtroom scenes for episode one, two, and three in one week. Mm-hmm. We sort of did that same model, like block shooting on a more micro level. So there's like this barn in the movie that sort of serves as an important landmark. And like we shot all of our barn scenes in one day. And then there's this pond and we shot all of our pond scenes in one day. And in doing that, you can really cut down on moves, like you said, Mm -hmm. and just kind of knock out all of your coverage. I mean, we were doing like eight to 10 pages a day on some days, but we were fine because the actors came in, like I mentioned, they had been in it with me from development. So they like really knew what they were getting into. And yeah, we did have one day with two company moves, but they were like next to each other, yeah, which made it doable. So let's talk about the team, the mm-hmm. crew, like how, at what, so we have sort of development and prep, mm-hmm. pre-production and then production and, and then we'll talk about post afterwards. Great. But I want to know like how big did it get and at these, in these different phases? Yeah. So when like I say skeleton crew, like we really were like kind of running around like high school kids making a movie, <laughs> but, with, uh-huh. but with really nice equipment, right? I, I will say I'm really lucky that my director of photography, this was, I think his 12th feature. He wow. is just a genius. And I got really lucky because I had optioned a pilot when I first moved out to LA like years ago. And he was like the first AC on the movie, on the pilot rather. Actually, no wait. He was officially the DP. He was going to be an assistant camera. And then the DP dropped out. So he took over and just did such a beautiful job on the project that I was like, I want to work with AJ Young on everything until I die. So he always liked my work kind of as a writer and we'd been trading work. And I sent him a draft of the feature. He was there at an early table read. I was like, AJ, listen, this is what we have. This is what I have for you. 
I know it's going to be less than what you normally work for. But because he was excited about the material and he knew me, he was willing to kind of hop on board. I also sold him points. So like, that's a big way for your micro budget filmmakers who are listening to get talented people invested if they believe in it and they believe it could succeed. Can you explain what points are? Totally, yes. Thank you for asking. In fact, this is kind of what the guilds are talking about right now in their negotiations. But that's just like kind of the industry term for a percentage of the back-end profits that you make once the movie starts making money. So, you know, for every X amount of money that we get from, from our distributor, the first thing I'll do before I even get paid is siphon off the percentages of royalties that are owed to anyone who's on the film who owns part of the movie percentage-wise, kind of like equity in a startup company. Mm -hmm. And they'll get paid before our production company does. So that was a great way because I'm long-winded on your question, but because he was so invested with me in the start, I feel like he was able to wear the hats of not only being a DP, but he has experience as a gaffer. So he helped light the movie. He Mm -hmm. like gave me advice as to like what kind of equipment package we should put together. He location scouted with me in prep so he could really understand not only how to shoot the movie, but how to kind of light and produce the film as well. So he was really an important technical backbone for me. And I can keep going in terms of other crew positions. I feel like I'm yeah, being long-winded. Yeah. But so we had AJ, who I would say is like a really multi-hander in terms of being a DP and also helping light the film. I had an AD, of course, um, which is an assistant director for our listeners to kind of keep the film on schedule. Our script supervisor, which is sort of a continuity position, I also had her sort of keep our wardrobe department (laughs) like under Mm -hmm. her purview. The nice thing about a limited location dramedy like this is, you know, this takes place over the course of three or four days with some flashbacks. But in doing that, we really limited the number of wardrobe changes that our cast needed to be making. So it wasn't too much of me to ask of our sort of scripty wardrobe hybrid position. We had a hair and makeup team, which was one person, (laughs) making sure that our actors looked good and mostly that they looked continuous between takes. Mm -hmm. And one PA who I would say was really AJ's kind of right hand, our DP, in terms of helping with equipment and lighting. But other than that, it was just me, my wife, who executive produced the movie, who was on set with me, and then our cast. And no sound person? Of course. Thank you. I almost (laughs) forgot. No, we actually, and I'm sure you get this on the show all the time, but If you're going to spring for anything, definitely spring for sound. That was the department that was probably the most expensive in our pre-production budget. But I had a brilliant female sound engineer actually named Carrie Stevens. And um, she should be working on Oscar-winning movies. She's a genius. And I hope to only ever work with her again. So yeah, she was great. And she ended up actually mixing the movie too, which was nice because she was on set. So So she understood. She had the context for it all. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. And you were shooting last summer, correct? Actually, two summers ago. So Two summers ago. Yeah, the timeline for the movie. You were in post last summer, I remember. Yeah, yeah. I was in post kind of like last spring, and we actually premiered at our first festival in June. So we've been doing a festival run for most of 2022. But yeah, our timeline was August 1st was 2021, was our first day of production. Um... June 2022 was our first festival. And then we played, I think, 10 throughout the next six Mm -hmm. months. And then it's supposed to come out on August 1st of 2023. But I suspect that will change because of the strikes. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's been a journey. Now, what tools were you using? What software were you using to set up this production? And were you shelling out the big bucks for this? Or yeah. were you trying to do the free version of Celtics? What were you doing? I, you know, I have always been a Final Draft user since I was like in college. So I, I feel like I have brand loyalty to Final Draft. But in terms of other like production software, nothing. I like 
we use Google Drive for oh our God. schedule. You know, we just had like a kind of big master doc of all of our call sheets and schedules. And, you know, you can have multiple tabs at the bottom. So when it's only an 11 day shoot, you can just kind of have each day. We had one master shooting list. But I found that Google Drive was a pretty useful production tool. You know, it made yeah. it easy to send resources and documents across multiple accounts. And because our development, our production team was really only me, my executive producer, Laura, my DP, and my AD, I feel mm-hmm. like the four of us could really kind of manage the planning just over over Google Drive. Yeah. Big Google Drive fan over here. Oh, yeah. I love like the live documents. And actually, this brings me to a specific question that we're working on for our production, which is with a script for a micro-budget film. Mm-hmm. It is a living, breathing thing. At least ours is. Like You're updating scenes all the time. How do you make sure everyone has the latest version of the script? I, we actually kind of did it the way a big studio movie would, which is like, you can actually you can put it in your resources, but the Writers Guild has like a very specific like outline of the different colors mm-hmm. of drafts that would represent each updated revision. So... In fact, you'll see this if you Google, like I know for a fact, if you Google the script for Juno, which is a movie I love, it's like probably the blue draft. So you can see- That's number two, right? I think blue is two. Yeah, that's right. Because that actually ended up being our shooting drafts. But yeah, it might be valuable for your audience to check that out just because you can see what like a revised shooting draft looks like. Mm -hmm. You'll of course like see scene numbers and of course other production logistics, but you'll also see like omissions and you'll see Mm -hmm. added scenes and- you'll start to understand why like a scene will be called 3.1, you know, if it's added yeah. in a revision. So we only ended up going through two script revisions, but I do think like the WGA's color-coded system has existed for 70 years for a reason, you know? <laughs> it, yeah. it works. Yeah, it works. Now, when you were on set shooting, what was the biggest obstacle that you and your team had? We got pretty lucky. I feel like this is never the case where like our first, like our shoot was pretty smooth. Like first time filmmakers are always like, it was a hellish nightmare and I never want to make a movie again. And I was like, it was fun. And like everyone got along. I will say it makes me think that I'm pitching my second feature right now. And it makes me think that like, that's probably going to be a nightmare, but (laughs) we'll see. I think truthfully, it was very hot. I would say like we were, it was primarily an outdoor movie, as I mentioned. It's a mm-hmm. camping dramedy and we shot in August in Ohio. So I think like just the nice thing about a camping movie is the characters don't need to look. I First of all, it's our hair and makeup and the way it's shot, I think like looks gorgeous. I want to credit yeah. my production team. But if an actor has a sweat stain on their shirt, like it's a camping movie, you know, if they yeah. look too pristine, it's not going to read as realistic. So I guess just like maintaining continuity and a really, really hot weather was a bit of a challenge. And in that interest, like have we had like four or five versions of every actor's outfit just because like they were often sweating through their clothing. So that's something to be really conscious of, especially like if you have the type of feature, like a movie like Shiva Baby, you know, they have one look through the entire movie. So having backups of those wardrobe is really important. What were some of the features that you looked at as case studies? That's a great question. Micro budgets. I'm glad you brought this up. It's a great movie. I know. I I haven't seen Bottoms yet, but I'm like dying to, I think it's going to be great. I'm glad you asked this because I feel like, I think of micro budget films as their own genre. And of course, like there are horror micro budgets and comedy micro budgets, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, I think studying how they were made and studying the types of decisions that can mm-hmm. make a movie feel like it's exceeding its budget is a really valuable way to approach your your $40,000 film. 
So in terms of like story, I actually approached bigger studio movies like The Big Chill and The Breakfast Club. I love the movie Big Fish. And this movie's not really like Big Fish, but I think it's kind of swimming in the same thematic pool. Yeah. So I think like for like tone and sort of theme, those were movies I was looking at. But for like production models, I love Trey Edward Schultz's debut, Cresha. Um, he shot that movie in one location. And it's kind of like very, very character driven around a secret trauma, which is something that our movie is about. The Cooper Rife movie, Shithouse, his uh-huh. debut. You know what? Actually, funnily enough, that movie came out after I had shot. But I think similarly, he shot that movie on a college campus. And mm-hmm. I maybe read about him before because he won the South by Prize the year before we started production. So I think I was like, yeah. oh, smart to put it on a college campus. But I have a whole, I love micro-budget features. I try to watch at least like two a month just to kind of keep my filmmaker brain inspired because I think it's yeah. really fun to see what people do without much money. Yeah. Okay, so inspiration, micro-budget we talked about. Let's talk about getting into post-production. Mm-hmm. I have heard you talk about this on The Screenwriter Life before, but for our listeners who aren't familiar. Take us through, you said filming was easy. Mm-hmm. How was post for you? Yeah, I think like post in a weird way may have presented the most challenges. I did something which you're not really supposed to do and I caught my first feature. Primarily the reason I did was because I we just didn't have the money to pay an editor what they would have needed. Mm-hmm. Especially I think editors deservedly become expensive because of revisions, right? Like, yeah. you know, you ask for a first cut or a rough cut, but Part of the job of an editor is to stay with you in the ship as you're doing multiple cuts. And I just knew that our team didn't have the resources to properly support that. I had edited shorts. I used to edit commercials for a podcast company that I worked for. So I had lots of experience editing, but this was my first time cutting a narrative feature. And I think probably the biggest challenge I encountered was just allowing other voices to push me to keep you know, cutting the movie. I think part of the reason they don't advise directors cut their own material is because you're inevitably tied emotionally to certain scenes that like the movie might not need or just because something felt great on set that day doesn't mean it necessarily feels great in the edit. And I think like reconciling my investment in the film as a writer and director with Mm -hmm. the objective distance that you need as an editor was sometimes a challenging negotiation. I was lucky yeah. that like I had other producers and creative voices to assist me through that journey. But that that was hard, especially like by the time the eighth cut was rolling around and I was just like, can we just finish this? You know? Yeah. How in in those dark times where you're like, I'm so burnt out on this movie, on this story, this is the eight. Like, where did the strength come from? Like, where did you find the wherewithal to keep going? I honestly have like a very serendipitous story here. I, as I mentioned, I think we've alluded to it, but I host and produce a podcast with a fairly large audience. And I feel pretty lucky to be on that show. But one of our listeners um, is a big studio editor. Um, Mm -hmm. She likes to, you know what? She's credited in the movie. So I'm just, she didn't want to take a co-editing credit because she's, you know, a part of their union. And I think technically we probably would have been, she walked me through cuts. So I'd call her more of like a consulting editor and mentor. Yeah. But she, her name's Anita Brant Burgoyne. And among other movies, she's cut Legally Blonde and Good Burger. She just cut oh Honor gosh. Society, which is um, a great Paramount Plus movie. And she loves the podcast. She's an emerging writer. And I posted in our Facebook group and I was like, hey, everyone, I'm like a experienced writer, somewhat experienced director and a fairly inexperienced editor. I need someone with actual chops to like take a look at this. And Anita yeah. was like, I'll take a look. 
And so I sent her the movie and she came back with like 16 pages of beautifully concise, concrete editing notes just out of the goodness of her heart. And I think the takeaway there is that like, People are willing to help. I know yeah. you're going to feel broke as a micro-budget filmmaker. You won't have the resources or tools that you need, but people will be so excited to watch you chase your dream. And mm-hmm. people still want to believe in the power of independent filmmaking that they'll offer their time and resources. Yeah, Like, I'm so excited for you, Gigi, as you go into pre-production. Like, I don't know how I can be helpful, but like, I could not be more in the camp for you to like go kick ass on yours. So Thank you. it's a very giving Thank community so and it's just finding the right people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jeff, you're doing all of this and also you are working a job Mm -hmm. that pays the bills, correct? And I think that we don't talk enough about how we survive uh, as creators in this industry. Like you and I, we work on podcasts so we can do this. Can you talk about how you balanced working and working on this project? Yes. I think like the idea of balance is probably like the first thing that you want to assess because I think like balance, I just had to accept like I might not have this right now, right? Like, so I think like already I would like challenge anyone who's asking like, how did you manage that work-life balance? I'd be like, well, instead of asking that question, maybe instead reassess like how important is balance to you in a concentrated season? And if you're willing to sacrifice that to make something you love, that mm-hmm. might be something you have to negotiate with yourself. So I think like, instead I ask the question of like, how much do I care about this? And do I care enough about it that like, if I'm editing at two in the morning, I won't burn out? Like, and the yeah. answer was yes. Like the answer was I did care about this enough that like, you know, the idea of finishing a work day and getting everything I needed to get done for the show and I consult on some other podcasts and knowing I had a six hour editing session ahead of me felt exciting and inspiring because I was so excited about making this dream come true. So right. I think like people will know how to answer that question themselves because I, I do feel to a certain extent that like filmmakers will make it happen because they have this undying thing that needs to make it happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's for some people, it doesn't even feel like an option. Yeah. And it's like, if your dreams are burning that hot in your body, like you're going to make them happen because you kind of have no other choice. Yeah. Is that the right answer? I feel like that's like maybe a discouraging answer. No, no. I think it's a great answer. And I also think that it's okay to sometimes not have balance. Yeah. And not feel guilty about it. I mean, I I had to set some boundaries this summer after traveling for to some film festivals and family events. And immediately after traveling for three weeks, I got home and my mom was like, are you coming to Nana and Poppy's wedding anniversary party? Like, can you just come up? And I was like, I just got home and I'm about to take this big leap. Like, can we celebrate over the winter holidays? Mm-hmm. And setting, and then of course she understood. And then they are, we're going to postpone and make it a surprise. They don't listen to this podcast. So <laughs> don't nobody tell Nana and Poppy about their surprise wedding party happening over the holidays. But I had to, there's FOMO. I'm missing weddings. I, it, it, it's been heartbreaking to tell friends that I can't fly to Michigan mm-hmm. for a wedding. You know, this is an investment in ourselves as creatives. Right. And I also think that it's very easy to sit back and wait for these opportunities to come, but they're not going to come. And if we want to be taken seriously as directors in any capacity from a commercial perspective and within this industry, we have to be able to pr- have proof mm-hmm. that we can do it. And that's what this is. So to me, this, like, I, I'm approaching this project as like a, 
my thesis, my grad school thesis, because I'm, you know, four and a half, five years into actively pursuing this after leaving my stable, safe corporate career. Right. And um, and it's an investment I'm willing to make. Well, and it's the kind of thing where if you were in grad school and it was finals week, like people would be really understanding of your need to draw boundaries. Or if you were a lawyer studying for the bar. And like, yeah. I think what can be really challenging is sometimes people view what we're doing as like a hobby or like a, a fun hobby. Yes. <laughs> and for you, it's like the career dream. For me, it's the same thing. And it's like, you just have to be willing to stand on your own principles and your own grounds when it comes to that. Because unfortunately, until you're, you know, winning awards. And sometimes even then, people just will always view what we're doing as play and not as career. So it's kind of our job to draw those boundaries and stand on that ground. I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think I wish people talked about this more because like the subconscious guilt that not only you might feel, but that like maybe other folks in different industries try to project onto you for making those decisions can be hard to kind of sort through, I think. Mm -hmm. I do sense that we get in this industry, and this is something I've spoken a lot with my partner, who's also a writer-director. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who work outside of the industry assume because we are either working part-time to pay our bills or we're working full-time for ourselves that we can just take time off. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, why don't you just come up? Or why don't you take the day off? And it's, I think, two. there are two things I want to say. One is... People need, we need to draw those boundaries so people also respect that what we're doing is a profession yeah. and a career and a craft that takes time and energy and often is treated like a nine to five. We just do it on our own time. The second is, I also think we as creatives need to give ourselves breaks, like mm-hmm. take Labor Day off yes. and, and realize that like it's easy to go way too far in the other direction and you're only taking. And you're not giving yourself any time off. Like we need vacation. You guys talk about this a lot on The Screenwriter Life, the power of rest Mm -hmm. for your creativity. I think that's exactly right. I think it's just, I want to slightly retract the answer I said earlier about balance to imply that it's not possible in this career. I think it's instead to imply that maybe it's seasonal rather than daily. Like I think for some people, like that work-life balance is like, I work a nine to six and I always come home and have a glass of wine, go for a walk and then do something for myself. And like, that is how I live my most full life. But I think for creatives, like it's always going to be a bit of a roller coaster in mm-hmm. terms of your commitments because the nature of project-based creativity is that way. And if you're like a, even for TV writers, your most intense season is going to be in pre-pro leading up to the season. Then while yeah. you're in production, as you're you know on set finishing episodes, that'll be busy. But, you know, if the room wraps and the, you know, the production still has four weeks of shooting, you're going to have less of a need and then you're on hiatus. So it's just accepting that the nature of balance looks different as a creative, I think. I actually have started looking at seasons very specifically as a way to look at approaching projects. Mm -hmm. Let me show you this tool that I have. It's a quarterly goal planner from Paqueto. Nice. And, and it's just, it's not tied to any dates, but it lets you set goals and it's the length of a quarter because in theory, that is like enough time here. It says here, studies show that a quarterly window is the ideal for setting and accomplishing professional and personal goals. It's long enough to really see results, but short enough to keep up momentum and motivation. This quarterly planner is designed to help you get to whatever finish line you want to set for yourself. Start anytime, blah, blah, blah. I love anyway, this. I'm it's I'm gonna get great. one. 
It, I highly recommend it. And I've, I'm two quarters into doing it. And I've had a really, this one, let's see, this I think was my first, this was my court Q1. And I completed a polished draft of a feature. I completed a, a script and it said do cardio three times a week. I did not do that, <laughs> but I rewarded myself with a spa day at the Wee Spa there you go. in LA. So anyway, it's, it, you, I think it is something that we can do. And then like, there will be those quarters where you don't see your friends and then right. the ones where you're working till 2 a.m. That's exactly Are you right. drinking coffee when you're editing at 2 a.m.? Is that how you keep yourself awake? You know, I will say I was so almost unhealthily obsessed with getting this. Truthfully, the way the timing worked out, I had we had finished production on August 16th of 2021. And I really wanted to make the South by deadline to submit the feature. And that I think was the end of October. So... Speaking of a quarter, that's about a quarter, right? And I was like, all right, I think yeah. I can at least pump out like a shitty cut <laughs> in that amount of time. And I will say it was a rough cut, but I'm not like deeply ashamed of the cut that I sent to South by. I think we're such a small movie. We don't have any like huge names in our movie. And I think it is increasingly hard to get into South by without a name. Yeah. But I still knew I wasn't sending necessarily my best work, but it gave me a deadline. And I think similarly to what you were just talking about, just kind of giving yourself a hard and fast deadline as a motivating tool, even if you know you're not going to be maybe submitting your best work, is a great way to just keep cooking. So that was my coffee, I think, during that time was that South by yeah. deadline. Love a deadline. Yeah. Love a deadline. I need them. Um, <laughs> well, what uh, as we wrap up here, are there any big takeaways you want to share with our the No Film School listening audience besides listen to the Screenwriter Life podcast, which I'll just go ahead and get that out of the way because that is such an incredible podcast. Thanks, Gigi. We, I, um, when I plug this interview on TSL, I'll make sure to mutually um, <laughs> plug NFS because I think it's equally great. You know, I, my wife, actually, I'm going to steal this from her because she's just like a very smart thinker. She's my producer on this and she's a producer as well in late night television. But she, as we were talking about getting the feature up on its feet, we were like, How, can we do this? Like, this is crazy. Like, this is a decent amount of our savings. You know, we might need to take out we're going to need to find at least one producer to kind of make up the difference of what we're going to be putting mm -hmm. into this. And she looked at me and she was like, here's what I think. I think that we kind of have two options. One is to like do this and take a big risk and possibly fail. Or the other is to not do it and be 95 in a nursing home, looking at each other, talking about the movie we never made, but dreamed of making. And both of those sound really, really hard. But I actually think like the nursing home one sounds harder. So I think we yeah. have to do it. And I think you have a lot of listeners who might be kind of feeling that same thing of like, how could I ever do this? But the answer is like, does it sound harder to not do it and look back and regret it? And I think most people yeah. know the answer. Yeah. Oh, she's a wise, wise lady. Much smarter than and me, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. You got to have a wise producer. Oh, yes. Between every... Behind every director. Definitely. Is a wise producer, right? Uh, I is couldn't agree more. Say? I mean, if, at least with some. If they don't say it, they should say it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. And I'll I'll give the audience afterwards with the wrap up the details on where they can watch your film. Great. Always Zola. And where can people follow your work? Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm not as active on social as I should be, but I feel like I'm mostly on Instagram. So you can find me there at Jeffrey Crane Graham, which if you're Googling me professionally, you'll have an easier time finding me as Jeffrey Crane Graham. That's kind of what I've started using professionally. And thanks for shouting out the movie, Gigi. Yeah, I will say, I feel like when I pitch it, it's like kind of sounds like it could be this like sort of maudlin serious grief movie, but 
the cast is so great. And it's ultimately like a, kind of a funny, feel-good movie, even though it's dealing yeah. with some serious themes. So if you're looking for just feel-good 87-minute movie about hanging out and unpacking grief as a teenager, I'd say check out Always Lola. We need that. Yeah. We need that. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for having me. This was so great. And as I told you at the start, I feel like I already know you tangentially, but it's fun <laughs> that we can actually talk to each other. But now we know each other. each other. Yeah, now we know exactly. each other. Exactly, yes. exactly. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us. You can stream and watch and review his film, Always Lola, on November 28th. So that is the past because this is coming out after that. And I really appreciated Jeff's just do it mentality. You know, I come back to that speech from Mark Duplass often, the one where he says, the cavalry is not coming. And I think it's really, really important for us as filmmakers to know that we need to create our own opportunities. And sometimes the only person who will give us permission to do something is ourselves. So Jeff, kudos to you. Also, just hell yeah, you made a movie and it got distribution and now it's out in the world. It's been so exciting to watch your journey. I'm so excited for you. And I think our audience learned a ton from this conversation. You can learn even more on the Screenwriter Life podcast. And you can learn more at No Film School, nofilmschool.com for a ton of articles. You can get more podcasts from us, like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast across all platforms. And you can also follow us on social media at No Film School across all the platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.